Welcome to the Song of Songs. This is a podcast based on the biblical book, The Song of Solomon, otherwise known as The Song of Songs. This is your host, John, and before we dive into the episode today, I'd like to take a few moments and just share with you a few updates concerning the future of the podcast and the upload schedule and things like that. If you follow our Facebook page, which I do recommend, uh, facebook.com slash turningtidemedia, uh, you may have noticed the post that I made a few days prior to uploading this episode. Uh, In that post, I detailed that we are going from a two-episode-per-week schedule to a one-episode-per-week schedule, and the reason for this is twofold. Uh, The first reason uh, is that my personal schedule and my life has gotten uh, quite a bit more complex since uh, the days where I first started this, this project, and uh, a lot of the time that I was able to devote to this project the first couple of weeks, I'm no longer able to do that because of different responsibilities that uh, I now have that I did not have then. And I'm thankful for those responsibilities. And uh, instead of abandoning this project just because life has gotten a little bit uh, more complicated and life has gotten a little bit more busy, I want to keep this project going, and I want to finish it, Uh, and I understand that it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort to do that. I don't think many people realize the amount of uh, energy and planning and forethought that has to go into a project like this, and I have had the wonderful fortune and privilege of being able to uh, already have done a study through the Song of Solomon. I've preached through the Song of Solomon. I've read commentaries already on the Song of Solomon. Even though I don't rely too heavily on commentaries, they are still helpful, especially regarding this book. Um, So I've already done a lot of that preparation, a lot of that study, and and, and a lot of the, the things that I am doing in preparation and anticipation of each Uh, episode here, uh, it's more refreshing work for me. I'm going back and revisiting things and trying to rethink on some things that I've already kind of thought about before. And so the load on me in that aspect of it is less than it would be if this was just a brand new topic to me. Uh, But that said, it's still quite a demand. Uh, And uh, it it takes a lot of time for me to uh, be able to sit down in a microphone and to uh, open up uh, the you know the recording software and you guys don't understand and, and I'm thankful for this you, you don't see how many times it takes me to get through the first couple of minutes of recording how many um, failed takes that I have of uh, bumbling words and I, I want to put out a, a quality product and I'm not able to go and edit these things quite as well as I was in the first few weeks. You'll notice the first few weeks I had a more polished product and less pauses and ums and things like that. That's because I went through uh, each and every episode and I scrubbed through it and I, I made sure that you know I omitted certain things and made sure things flowed well. I'm not able to do that very much anymore. And so uh, I'm really... Uh, limited on the amount of time and energy that I have to be able to invest in this. And so I think one episode per week would be better than uh, two episodes, than promising two episodes and only actually delivering on one. Um, The second reason for this change is that uh, I've struggled in the last few weeks um, to establish a rhythm uh, and to really dive in and and get as much as I can out of the text that we're studying, 
uh, it seems like by the time I establish that rhythm and, and I'm getting into it, it, it's time to, to shut down the podcast. And I know nobody is forcing me into a time constraint, but I, I had this, uh, this goal of trying to keep it around 20 minutes for those shorter episodes, for the, the two episodes per week kind of schedule. And so I'm kind of abandoning that uh, that goal that I have of, well, we've got to keep it under 20 minutes. You know, we've got to keep it nice and compact. I understand that most people aren't going to listen to the entire podcast episode anyway. I mean, I, I have that expectation already. And so for those of you who are really genuinely interested in the stu- subject and in the topic... You know, you'll you'll find time if it's if it's something that's beneficial to you, if it's something that the Lord is able to use in your life uh, to help open your eyes to this wonderful book of the Bible, then you may have to separate it out, you know, over a course of two or three different sessions for yourself. But you would might be willing to listen to a longer episode. And so, the thought is not only to to make the demand on me less taxing and more obtainable by going to a one episode per week. It's also making it to where that one episode can be a little bit longer, it can be a little bit more in-depth, and I can actually really dive in and try to exhaust a subject. And I wish I'd have made this change last week, because uh, last week we started uh, what would probably be one of the first uh, sensitive texts. Let's call it a sensitive text. It's not necessarily controversial in the sense that it's it's dealing with... uh, you know something that is potentially uh, sexual in nature. That's not why this particular text is is sensitive. It's sensitive because of the way that our culture and our our world today views race. And she's and and we're speaking about a, a text that is directly dealing with the ethnicity, the race, the background of the person who is speaking, and so. We're trying to draw spiritual pictures from it, uh, but at the same time, there's a few things that we're trying to be very cautious about how we word things, because it would be very easy for us uh, to word things in such a way that could be easily misconstrued and easily misrepresented and easily misunderstood. And so uh, we want to kind of go back to the text that we looked at last week just because verses 5 and 6 of the first chapter of Song of Solomon are very closely linked with each other. So Song of Solomon 1, for the most part, there's a few verses that this isn't the case, but for the most part, it's written from the bride's perspective. From verse number 2 down to verse number 7, it's all written from the bride's perspective. From verse number 12 down to verse number 17, those are written for the most part. There's a few verses in between on those that are not, but for the most part, those verses are written from the bride's perspective. And so we've covered uh, who historically uh, this person might have been, who the bride might have been, considered the possibility that it was uh, Pharaoh's daughter who received some special treatment from Solomon as documented in the books of Chronicles and of Kings. Um, But We come to this passage of scripture, it says in verse number 5 and in verse number 6 of Song of Solomon 1, she says, I am black, but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. We looked at that from the perspective of her talking about her being an outsider. Okay, she's not an Israelite. Uh, She is speaking about her skin color. She's speaking about her background in that aspect. And she says, so I'm not an Israelite. I'm not a Hebrew I don't have, you know, those certain 
criteria checked off. You know, I, I don't meet those criteria to be deserving of being the queen or being the wife of the king of the nation of Israel. We, again, realize, even as they are now, back then, Israel was a very nationalistic people. And, again, for good reason. That's not a criticism. It's just an observation. They, they very much were wary of outsiders. And God had told them to be wary of outsiders. And so she's saying, you know, I'm an outsider. Uh, but I'm being welcomed into the house of the king. She says, I'm black, but I'm comely, uh, beautiful, and uh, sought after. And she says, oh, ye daughters of Jerusalem. That reinforces the idea that she is an outsider. She's not herself a daughter of Jerusalem, but she is speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, and she's trying to defend herself to some degree. She says, as the tents of Kedar, and Kedar was one of the children of Ishmael. So there again, reinforcing the idea, I am an outsider. But as the curtains of Solomon, a tent is a, uh, a temporary dwelling place, tent of Kedar, a temporary dwelling place of an outsider, as the curtains of Solomon, and that's an adornment of Solomon, who was the king, established and, and royal in the sense of the term. She says in verse number six, though, and then she, she begins to talk about her relationship uh, with those who were should have been closest to her prior to this marriage. She says in verse number six, Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. There's a few things in this passage of scripture that are very important to us and should be very important to us, rather, as we begin to consider and to study these things out. So revisiting the idea in verse number five, it's not saying that because of the color of her skin that that made her any less valuable or any less desirable. But from the perspective of a very nationalistic people, she's saying <clears throat> that her not being an Israelite, not being a Hebrew, that that is not necessarily a mark in her favor. So she says in verse number six, and there's a sense of shame about her because she is an outsider, because she has been, uh, it's less about her being an outsider in verse number six and more about an oppression. Because you look at how she terms this. She says, look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. And she's talking about having to endure a life where, you know, she she is exposed to the natural element, elements. She is exposed to the harshness of the sun. Uh, and so as a result of that, you know, her skin color is very dark. And she is talking in ver this verse about an oppression that goes on around her and that she has had to endure. She's saying that the natural forces, uh, you know, the sun has oppressed her. In verse number six, she continues on. She says, my mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of her vineyards, but my, or of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. She's talking about her family now oppressing her. She says, my mother's children were angry with my, my brothers and sisters. They didn't like me. They despised me and they forced me to work in their fields and they forced me to, you know, become a servant of them and to labor for them. But I didn't get to experience any of the blessings or benefits of, you know, my, my labors for them. Uh, she says, you know, I spent all my time working for them and my own vineyard. Have I not kept my own, you know, vineyard is, is, 
uh, withering away into into nothing because I haven't been able to take the time that's necessary to you know to prune and to water and to nurture and to protect and all of those things that go into keeping a vine. Um, she says, I've not been able to do any of that. I've neglected my own responsibilities because I've been busy uh, taking care of and attending to the desires, needs, and expectations of other people. And there's a very good spiritual point that is to be made in this. As we know, uh, if this indeed is talking about Pharaoh's daughter, Egypt is a picture of the world. And this is another reason why I prefer uh, this particular... Um, application or this particular viewpoint that uh, Pharaoh's daughter is the woman being uh, spoken about and 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 so uh, lovingly entreated in the book of the Song of Solomon that it's Pharaoh's daughter here because uh, Solomon has redeemed her has has brought her uh, out of the land of Egypt and brought her into the land of uh, Israel. She's brought. He's brought her from the place that represents the world into the place that represents the kingdom of God. Right, and so there's a picture there of God delivering us out of out of the bondage of sin and into the freedom of uh, and the liberty of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she says here in verse number six, she's talking about her life beforehand. She says, my mother's children, they were angry with me and the sun beat down upon me every single day. And I was oppressed and I was miserable. And for all of these different things that I had to do, I was always busy working and laboring for my mother's children. But my own vineyards, they, uh, they were abandoned and they were neglected and they were run down and they were dilapidated and, you know, th th they were in disrepair. And this is a... <laughs> A wonderful and a beautiful truth that is given to us that in the world we have absolutely no rest. There is no rest for us in the world. I'm not just saying for us as Christians. There's no rest for anybody in the world. You think about how life may have been. Uh, I don't know your background. I don't know your history. I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord. I don't know if you are truly and genuinely born again. There is a possibility of the reality that somebody might be listening to this and they themselves do not really, actually, truly know and seek after the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're not truly completely resolved and trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the blood of Jesus Christ alone to be their their salvation. And so there's a possibility that there's someone listening to this who's not even saved at all in the term of, you know, we use the term saved so often that I think sometimes people get the wrong idea about what it means to be saved from sin and to be saved from self and to be saved from this this land that she is referring to and these responsibilities that she's referring to in Egypt not saying that God wants to deliver us out of responsibility he wants to give us a good responsibility we know that in the garden of eden god institution instituted work he he gave man a job to do so there's responsibility but there was joy in performing that responsibility there's no joy in performing the responsibility that we have that we think that we have to the world that we think that we have to ourselves apart from christ 
I know of, of folks who, you know, we might look at and, and, and might easily call them uh, selfless people. Uh, you know, they're, they're always going and serving other people and they're looking for the needs of other people and, and they're constantly going and doing and, and, and we think about uh, the service that, you know, people have for other people, but yet there's no rest. There's no satisfaction. And I'm talking about a, a lasting satisfaction or peace rest for their souls. That's what Jesus you know, tells us, tells everyone. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, and I believe I may have even referenced to that uh, either in a message that I preached recently or in a podcast I recorded recently. Either way, it's been been on my heart in the last week or so that you know he, he tells us of that lasting rest. What is that lasting rest? That you shall find rest for your soul. He says to take his yoke upon us and to learn of him. To enter into a more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the only rest that you will ever have in this world. Your rest is not going to come from fulfilling responsibilities to other people. Your rest is not going to come from uh, trying to do everything that you can, even for yourself or for the church. You know, I, I've seen people as, as a Christian minister, as a pastor and preacher, and I've worked with camp ministers. I, I have seen people who are just, they're constantly going and doing things for the church. But yet they seem so void of happiness, of, of joy, that there's no satisfaction in their heart at all. You know, we need to be satisfied with the work that the Lord has called us to do. But the only way that we can get to that place is by following the Lord and by trusting the Lord. I'm afraid, though, that so many of us are refusing to follow the Lord, whether that's an active or a passive refusal, you know, whether we're knowingly refusing to follow the Lord or whether we're unknowingly refusing to follow the Lord, but we're refusing to follow the Lord because we're too busy listening to all these other people making demands upon us. Think about it. What what if Jesus had taken all the time that was asked of him, you know, from people, come heal this person, come teach, you know, teach us here, come, you know, eat with us here. What if he fulfilled every single demand that was made of him? What if he never took the time to go into a desert place alone? And pray. What if he he was constantly about doing work, but not about communing with the Father? Well, that's not what Jesus did at all. You know that we get into trouble when we start doing hypotheticals like that. But just asking the question, what if Jesus only did what people asked him to do, instead of doing what? He knew he needed to do and what the Father demanded of him and what the Father was pleased of him to do. And sometimes, and this is especially true of a pastor, sometimes your people, your church people, your your you know, your parishioners is the old school term that we might use, sometimes your church members need you not to be there for them. They need you to be alone with God somewhere. 
even if they're making demands on you and saying, you know, I've got this going on and I've got that, somebody, somewhere, they're going to have something going on all the time. There's something that's going to be happening that the world is going to say, look, your attention needs to be here. And the world is vying for our attention. They're fighting for our attention. Everything is fighting for our attention. We've got entertainment and technology. We've, we've got responsibilities and demands and all of these different things. And, and all she wants to do, and we'll get into this next week, but all she wants to do, verse number seven, she's like, I, I just want to be nurtured and I just want to be in a place where I can be fed just like you feed your sheep, I want to be fed. I want to enjoy the communion and the fellowship that they have with you. I want to know that. Maybe, just maybe, someone's listening to this and they're truly a child of God, but they're so tired and so weary, and they say, I don't know what to do. Maybe you need to stop listening to people for just a minute and get alone with the Lord. Chase after him. She says, My entire life, I've been oppressed. I've been beaten down. I've been told what to do, told where to go, and what has it gotten me? My own vineyard. You know, the culmination of my life experience and, and, and the fruits of my labors. There are no fruits of my labors because I'm constantly concerned about I need to go here and I need to go do this and this person needs me over here and that person needs me over there and I've had taken no time just to do what I really needed to do. And what you really need to do is get alone with God. That's what you really need to do. And that's what she's wanting to do. The whole, the next verse is, is a whole cry of saying, I want to be directed in the path that I should go. She wants to stop listening to everybody else, all those voices back in Egypt, and she wants to know, where do I need to go? Where do I need to go from the perspective or from, from the mouth of the one that I love? Let him tell me what to do. You know, there's, there's no short supply of people who want to fix all your problems and want to tell you what to do and how to fix and solve all the issues of the world or all the issues that you've got going on. I know this, again, as a preacher because I'll go to different places and, you know, when I, I especially when I worked for a camp ministry and I met a lot of different preachers and they'd ask me, where'd you go to school? And I had to tell them the honest answers. Like, I, I, I'm a college dropout. You know, I didn't go to seminary. I went to a Bible college for a few few semesters, for three semesters, and there are a lot of different reasons why I, quote-unquote, took a semester off, and that semester wound up being, let me think, about 14 years now. Um, there's there's a few reasons for that, but, you know, there, there are some difficulties that are in my life because of a lack of connections or, you know, this, that, or the other. And, and I've got, you know, there are people who want to tell me, you know, what would fix that if you, you, you'd go to college. And I'm not against college if it's a good college. If they're teaching you to pray, you know, that's a good thing. I, I'm, I'm against, you know, being taught how to preach before you get, are taught how to pray. Um, but I digress. Um, but there, there are 
plenty of people who want to tell you, well, if you just, you know, get hooked up with a college, get hooked up with the school, then, you know, you'd see connections. Doors would open for you. Well, well, God's the one who has to open the doors. And there, there are people who want to say, well, you know how to how to grow your church. You, you just need to, you know, start doing this in order to grow your church. You need to have this function, this program, this kind of, you need to bring this specialist on staff. You know, you need to have a, a minister of this and a minister of that and a minister of, uh, of all of these different things. And that's how you grow your church. And you need to have this kind of ministry and you need to have that kind of program. You need to, and they say all of these different things, but I really, truly, honestly, believe that what we really need is to do exactly what the woman does in verse number seven and say, lead me, show me where to go, go to the Lord for advice and for counsel and for direction, go to him, he'll lead you in the right way, because if you go to the world, you're just going to be told what to do and nothing's really going to get any better. There are plenty of smart people out in the world, and they may have a business mindset about things, but they do not perceive or know spiritual truth. The only way for us really, really, to have fruit in our life, lasting good fruit in our life, is by going to the Lord first. And saying, Lord, teach me, show me, guide me. Well, let's go ahead and just, while we're at this, already made the announcement we're going to go to one longer episode per week let's go ahead and look at verse number seven as well since we've already kind of covered it she says tell me O thou whom my soul loveth where thou feedest where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon for why should i be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions she is again speaking i believe to Solomon. There are some people who take a different interpretation to this book and base their entire interpretation of this book based upon uh, verse number 7 being the introduction of a different character. I believe that the one she's talking about in verse number 7, tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, is the same person, the O thou whom my soul loveth, the thou there is the same person who's being referenced to in verse number two. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than one. I don't believe she's so fickle as to change the object of her affection that fast to be speaking about Solomon from verses one through from verses one through four. Uh, or two through four technically and then all of a sudden shift gears in verse number seven and have a different person whom her soul loves. So She's speaking to Solomon. Um, that's just, in my opinion, which, albeit is not worth very much, but I believe it's pretty clear and plain in Scripture. She's speaking to Solomon still. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou maketh thy flock to rest at noon. So she's asking for the place where he nurtures, where he uh, provides for and gives rest for his flock. Um, and again, to kind of combat this idea mentality that this is a shepherd boy that's being introduced here, and this is the true Christ figure, whereas Solomon is a figure of the world. If you're interested in that viewpoint, we covered a little bit in episode number one. I don't take that viewpoint. I take the viewpoint that Solomon 
represents and pictures Christ, typifies Christ, and that the woman typifies uh, the uh, bride of Christ, that being the church in general, the Christian in particular. Um, but in verse number 8, you have the response from the one whom her soul loves, and she's ta- and he's talking in verse number 8 about giving instruction about uh, going by the shepherd's tents, and to feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. Uh, and so... I, I believe, again, that Solomon is the one that her soul loves and that uh, he has shepherds underneath his, you know, his employment uh, who watch over the sheep. So they are, the sheep are Solomon's, but he's not the one spending every day, every night out there uh, in, in the fields with with the sheep. The sheep are still Solomon's. But he's not the one doing the day-to-day overseeing and, and taking care of, of, of the sheep. And this is a picture, again, um, of uh, the, the different shepherds, the under-shepherds that God has, has set up uh, in the church. Pastors, elders, bishops, those are all one term, or, or three different terms uh, concerning one office, a pastor, an esh, uh, a bishop, and an elder. Those are all one office in the Bible. Uh, very clear, very plain that the only two offices are that of pastor, bishop, elder, uh, and then also of deacon. Uh, and so uh, there are those who are shepherds, under shepherds, that the Lord has uh, commissioned, has ordained, has sent uh, to watch over the church and to uh, teach the church and to feed the church and to love the church and to nurture the church and to protect the church, all of those different things. And so he's saying, you know, I've got these shepherds. If you want to know, you know, where to go, you follow after them and they'll point you in the right way. But in verse number seven, we'll get into verse eight next week, but in verse number seven, she's saying, you know, I I want to be in that same care that your sheep are in. I want to be nurtured. I want to be provided for. I want to be, you know, given a place of rest. Of course, we think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He uh, restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. You know, we, we know the, 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 the chapter there. Uh, sh- so she's saying, you know, I want to be in the same care and the same rest. I want to enjoy the same rest that your sheep enjoy. And she says at the end of it, For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Why should I be one uh, that uh, when they come to you know the sheep, when they come to uh, Solomon's flocks, that they turn aside, that they're not welcome, that they're not brought into a place you know, of, of fellowship and of communion and of labor and rest alongside, you know, why should I be one like one that's being turned away from thy flocks? And so she's saying, I don't want to be an outsider. I don't want to be one uh, that is uh, rejected. I, I want to be one that is received. And of course, we go to the New Testament in the book of John, and we'll find that Jesus has a lot to say about this as well. And I'll I'll actually read some of this for the most part in this podcast. We stay in the book of Song of Solomon, but I'd like to to read this because it's very, very applicable to this. Uh, Jesus says in John 10, verse number 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the uh, the sheepfold, 
but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He that entereth in the, the by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his sheep his own sheep by name, and he leadeth them out. Uh, he says uh, in verse number seven, he says, "I am the door of the sheep." Uh, he says, "All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man." enter in he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture uh, he goes on and he says in verse number 11 i am the good shepherd the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep verse 14 i am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine he continues on uh, talking about other sheep in verse number 16 other sheep i have which are not of this fold them must also i must bring and uh, they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd uh, he is talking in verse 17 verse 18 about the way that he's going to make that happen by laying down his own life he continues on in uh, verses 25, and uh, the following verses, he, he's talking about how that um, if, if they believe that they're his sheep, uh, he says, but if you believe not, uh, it's because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I shall give, and I give unto them uh, eternal life. An important distinction there, not I shall give unto them eternal life, I give unto them eternal life, because eternal life is not some future thing that we may obtain one day. Eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent in John chapter 17. That's where he defines what eternal life really truly is. That begins when we, by faith, trust him. We uh, uh, completely abandon all faith and trust in self, and we place all of our trust and faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's when eternal life begins, when we enter into that relationship with him by faith. And he says, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He, so he's talking about sheep. And being in a place of rest, and being in a place of protection, and being in a place of communion. This is what the bride wanted. She wanted to be in a place of communion, not in a place of being cast out and cast aside. She wanted to be able to have that free access into the fellowship and fold of God's people. That's what we ought to desire. I hope and pray that that is your desire. That I want to know him and I want to enjoy the rest that only trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood on Calvary, only the rest that that can give. I want to know that. I want to pursue after that. I want to seek after that. I want him above all other things. Because it doesn't matter how busy I am in the world, if I'm not about the Father's business, all that worldly business that I do, no matter how many lives I might affect or how many lives I might impact as a result of that, I can give all of my, you know, all of my possessions for the for the poor, but if I don't have charity, if I don't have a love that points to the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's all for nothing. She says, I don't want to just be busy. I, I, I want to be in fellowship. I want to be in communion. I want to be in a community of, of people who, who are following after the same thing I'm following after, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So I hope and pray that a slightly longer episode today might be beneficial to you and that the Lord might do a work in our heart to show us that just being busy in the world isn't an indication that we're really where we need to be. Sometimes we need to step away. All the time we need to listen to the Lord. All the time we need to seek after the Lord. But sometimes in terms of our earthly responsibilities and earthly burdens, sometimes we just need to step aside and get alone with the Lord and say, Lord, why should I be like one that's turned away? Why should I be an outsider to you? You're a friend to the fatherless. Who who do I have if not the Lord? There's no friend like him. There's no family like him. There's no uh, master like him. There's no helper like him. There's no provider like him. He is all. He is all that I need. And so he should be all that we seek as well. And of course, when we're seeking after him, he will teach us to do those other responsibilities well. If you juxtapose uh, Song of Solomon 1 against the end of the book, you will find that at the end of the book, whereas at the beginning, the bride says, my own vineyard have I not kept. At the end of the book, she has a vineyard and it's flourishing. When we enter into that right relationship with the Lord, then we're able to actually do our day-to-day mundane, quote-unquote mundane, uh, responsibilities in such a way that the Lord can bless that, and the Lord will use that, and the Lord will honor that. He will honor those that honor Him. He's not going to share His glory with another, but when we seek Him and seek after Him, He delights Himself and blessing us. And I'm not talking Bugattis and mansions and things like that. We're not speaking a prosperity gospel here. But when we know him, truly know him, the world is going to see fruits. Fruits of our labors. Fruits of our fellowship. Fruits of our communion with him. And we won't have a barren vineyard anymore. But we'll have a lush, thriving, green, growing vineyard. Because when we make him our first priority, everything else falls in place. Well, until next week, when we will consider uh, the very first words that we have from the Christ figure of Solomon in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. We might try to cover all four of those verses. We'll see how it goes and try to cover some more ground in the Song of Solomon. But until then, may the Lord help us to honor him in all things and keep Jesus Christ at the forefront of our attention and of our focus. And may the Lord Jesus Christ be praised. Until next week, may God bless.